Tour Guide to our listeners, this is Candon wandering the streets of LaDroit Park with a special episode this week. Rebecca and Becca will be back next week, but I wanted to share with you that my newest book, LaDroit Park, A History and Guide, is out now. While you can get it on Amazon if necessary, you can also use the link in the description to get a direct copy from me, signed, and everything. I joined Rebecca a few months ago to talk about the research with the book, but now I want to share just two of the great stories of this neighborhood. One day earlier this month, I was joined by local musician and music historian Ken Avis and by LaDroit Park homeowner Aaron Renaka to talk about the neighborhood. First up, I chatted with Ken about the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. So we are on the 200 block of T Street, and this is the home to, or was the home to Geneva Perry when she was growing up. Uh, There is a wind chime that you'll hear throughout our conversation. We're just down the street from Howard Theater, a preeminent black vantage theater that hosted black artists, but at a time when those same artists were not welcome at the hotels in D.C. So many of the LaDroit Park residents opened their homes as a place for the artists to stay. I really wanted to add in some of uh, the music, but I don't know how that all works with copyright. Uh, So I'm going to put a link to the YouTube video of the International Sweethearts of Rhythm in the show notes to this episode. So there are some oral histories that mention Geneva Perry um, and her family. They did this. They opened their home to black artists performing at the Howard Theater, and that might have influenced a young Geneva Perry's love of music. So she began learning the saxophone and would go on to play with the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. She had the nickname Teacher, and she would go on to teach music in the schools in North Carolina before returning home to LaDroit Park to open up a bed and breakfast in her family home here. But my research, um, I mean, it's mostly about Geneva uh, and LaDroit Park, so I didn't really look into too much about the International Sweethearts of Rhythms. And Ken, I'd love for you to tell us more about this group. Washington, D.C. was the home to the International Sweethearts of Rhythm throughout the 1940s. More precisely, they actually lived in South Quincy Street, Arlington, uh, in a house called Sweetheart House, which uh, has now become the on-ramp to Route 50, sadly. Um, They were an incredible band. They were America's first all-woman, multiracial jazz big band, which is just mind-blowing in a sense that how can we possibly have been host to that band for 10 years and they become forgotten by most people. But they were an absolutely incredible band. They were winning the downbeat best jazz band competitions. They were um, having people like Ella Fitzgerald uh, as guest vocalists singing with them. And one of the uh, musicians in the band was being courted by Louis Armstrong. She was a trumpet player, he was a trumpet player, and he wanted her to join his band, but she preferred to stay with the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. So so how did they get their start? Because an all-female mixed-race big band seems like something that has to have a unique beginning. The story behind the band was quite incredible as well. 
Its beginnings started in a school in Mississippi, and it was a school called Pineywood School. It was for orphans and impoverished children, uh, so it was a boarding school, and it was a place where they would learn uh, crafts and trades so that they could become cobblers, shoemakers, carpenters, uh, and do work of that kind. And it was a multiracial school, a large black population, of course, but also people from Hawaii, Asian, all kinds of people there, and they became the band when the principal of the school decided, you know, big band music's a happening thing right now in the 1930s. I could make some money for the school by creating a band amongst the girls here and sending them out to play in local venues. So that's what he did. The girls were taught to play musical instruments and they were uh, turned into one of the best touring attractions in the area. And they toured even as schoolgirls throughout the South and the Mid-Atlantic area and were quite well known. Now the problem arose when um, they were due to graduate because of course they were the cash cow for the school and the principal didn't want to lose that money. And so at that stage he said, well I'm sorry girls, we just can't really allow you to graduate. You've not done enough education yet, you've been too busy playing music. And irritated by that and then angered when they discovered he had an insurance policy um, which in case of injury or death all of the money would go to him and to the school. Uh, they decided enough was enough and they actually ran away. In the dead of night they left the school, sneaked out, commandeered the school bus and drove off. And when they realized that the police were after them, they stopped the bus, went to a payphone, and they called one of their patrons, a fan who lived in uh, the DC area, and he offered them a house to live in, and that's the house that became Sweetheart House. Oh, that is hilarious. And what a generous patron. I would love if I knew anyone. Patrons, if I called you and said I needed a place to live, would you just let me and the Rebecca's come, come there? <laughs> so I've heard that there's a little something about um, their their tour bus that is interesting. Um, another little bit of history there is the fact that um, the school bus was built out with bunks and living quarters and is considered to have been the first music tour bus ever created way before Willie Nelson's tour bus and it was actually built by the kids in the school because it was part of the craft projects that they were learning and developing skills in. Crazy story. So they moved to Washington DC, they played throughout the DC area and they became a magnet for all of the best uh, female musicians around America. They all wanted to be part of this band, they were that well known and people would move to DC to audition with the band and trying to get a role in the International Sweethearts. They were so popular also that during the war years, and DC had a fabulous war, there was parties galore going on in the DC area throughout the war and lots of demand for musicians. But they not only played in DC, they held the record for the most consecutive sold out shows at the Howard Theater in the 1940s and such was their fame that the troops in Europe, the American troops, demanded that the International Sweet Arts be shipped out to, to Europe to perform for the troops to boost morale. And so there are some fabulous photographs of them all dressed in uniform on the troop ship, on the carrier going over there uh, to perform for American troops. I will find those photos and post them on our social media. When, after the war, they came back to D.C., of course, a lot of those musicians, male musicians, who'd gone off to war, were available and started to work again. D.C. 
wasn't as popular as a center for diplomats to come, a safe place to, to come and talk politics and, and talk the war effort. And so the demand for musicians reduced a little bit there at that time. And the band gradually broke up in the late 40s. But many of the musicians went off to live around the US and continued to perform and were really well known. The other strange thing about the band is the fact that they'd become so forgotten. I mean, one reason for this is they never actually recorded an album. There are some fabulous films, black and white films, um, that were shot of the band performing live. And you can see those on YouTube and see just what a great band they were. But if you do look at those films, you may not think they were necessarily multiracial because for a lot of audiences, they had to either black up or white up a little bit with makeup uh, to avoid the sensibilities and the segregation mentality that was going on at the time. They had lots of issues and problems with that uh, throughout their career. Um, but they also did a lot of radio and so there were recordings from some of those radio programs which still exist to this day. It's fascinating to me that they were so famous during their time but I had I've never heard of them. I mean, I am a historian who focuses on women's history, and my husband is a local DC musician. So I thought I had my finger on the pulse of this, and it, it completely escaped my radar, uh, really, until I was researching LaDrape Bart. But they largely were a forgotten band until the women's movement in the 1960s, 70s, kind of, somebody rediscovered them and said, wow, this is fabulous. Imagine there was a, an interracial all-woman group in the 1940s that was immensely successful and has been forgotten. Lots of stories within that and, uh, and so they became the topic of many a research project and uh, appeared in a few books about the women's movement um, only to be kind of forgotten again uh, in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, the Smithsonian did invite the remaining members back to do a talk and they were interviewed on stage for the Smithsonian um, in the 2000s uh, and it's an interesting conversation. Um, the ladies were just so humble about the whole thing. They really kind of didn't know what the fuss was about because that's just the thing that they did. You know, a lot of water had gone under the bus since then and they were asked about their role in empowering women and they said, you know, we were just playing music. We just love playing music and, you know, there seemed to be an audience for it and it was as simple as that. Um, but I think at the same time their influence is probably underestimated in the fact that they brought so many female musicians to DC and played for so many audiences during those years. And that's basically the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. Thank you, Ken, for sharing more about the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. Listeners, I cannot explain how much DC music history knowledge Ken has, so he will be back. But for now, this is supposed to be a mini episode. Uh, I'm going to head just down the street a bit to talk about one more person who lived in LaDroit Park. Just a few blocks down T Street is a beautifully restored red brick home. Aaron graciously let me see some of the work that he has done, which I will post all about on social media at Tour Guide Tell All. So the house was originally built for Charles White, a geologist at the U.S. Geological Survey. And at one point, it seemed like everyone who lived in LaDroit Park also worked there. Aaron's going to share a fun interior feature that highlights the geological past later in the episode. The Whites eventually sold the house to the Paytons. Fountain Payton was born enslaved in 1861 in Virginia. His father was taken south by the Confederate Army, 
and his mother escaped to the contraband camps here in D.C. with him as a baby. Peyton pursued an education starting at the age of six and proved to be a bright student. He sported himself by selling newspapers, often selling to President Grant, who was known to be a good tipper to the newsboys. At the time, Howard University required study in classical languages to enroll, and Peyton did not have that. But he was undeterred in his ambition to be a lawyer, and Peyton taught at a school in Maryland while studying to apply again. His acceptance to Howard Law School came at the same time as a new job, as a postman. So what he would do is attend lectures at school with his mailbag and then run the route to ensure the mail is delivered on schedule. His law practice in D.C. opened in 1890 and he became a successful criminal defense attorney. He was the first black lawyer to argue at the D.C. Court of Appeals and the first black examiner in chancery for D.C. In the dining room of the house, Peyton pursued two unique hobbies. He particularly enjoyed dismantling and then reassembling radios, but he also enjoyed doing his own historical research. So in the 1820s to 60s, Ira Frederick Aldridge was a black Shakespearean actor and Peyton would publish a book about him in 1917. The book was printed by Robert Louis Pendleton who was one of the first black printers to establish a printing company in DC. So the book, which is titled A Glance at the Life of Ira Aldridge, is a unique combination of a book that is about a black actor written by a black author printed by a black printer in the early 20th century. I wanted to talk to Aaron about LaDroit Park today and what it's like owning a historic house. Um, so we moved to LaDroit Park in August of 2016. Okay. And were you looking for a house with history that you could renovate, or were you looking for a place in Ledroit Park, or were you looking for both? Um, actually, it was, it was neither of those things. Um, I, since purchasing my first place in 2004, one of the first neighborhoods that I actually looked at was Ledroit Park. Um, and it was really the, the architectural diversity of the neighborhood that really intrigued me. It's actually what I've always loved about DC and what really post-college, what, what drove me to, to live downtown was, was the, the architecture. Um, so I looked at LaDroit Park back in 2004. It was obviously at the time way outside of, already way outside of my you know, realm of possibility. Um, ended up in a 350 square foot studio in DuPont instead. Um, but over the years, uh, progressively kind of renovated a number of different places. Um, progressively larger and larger. Um, and then ultimately when, when this property became available, um, really only for the fourth time in its history, I think, um, it was just a, a series of kind of, uh, events, you know, some of which probably shouldn't have played out, um, <laughs> the way that they did, but really in a number of twists of fate, I went from looking in, you know, Petworth and Northern Columbia Heights, uh, to really pursuing this property. It was meant to be. Um, it was. Uh, it took eight months of back and forth negotiations and uh, a lot of, like I said, twists of fate, but, uh, but it all worked out. So your other projects were not historic restorations? No, they were, um, they were in older properties, you know, early 1900s row houses, that type of thing. Um, condo buildings, older condo buildings. 
Um, but they were all, you know, properties that previously kind of had been removed of their historic character, mm -hmm. right? You might find a newel post or something like that, an old banister, but, you know, maybe the remnants of a pocket door. Uh, but that was really all that was there. So nothing really to preserve. Um, my style was very contemporary, open concept, very modern, clean lines, that type of thing. So, and, and that worked uh, up until <laughs> up until this property. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so when you got this property... Why did you decide to preserve its history? Um, yeah, great question. It was it was one of those things where um, I started learning a bit more about the history of the property, the people that lived here. Um, it was the fact that you know the 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 wood trim um, had somehow survived you know 140 some odd years, whatever it is, uh, without being painted. So was I really going to be as the, the know, one the, to do it as, a, as, the, as the fourth owner of the house? Am I actually going to be the one that, that breaks that streak? Um, and, you know, and, and ultimately I came down to the answer is no. Um, you know, is it going to be an absolute nightmare and pain to refinish all of the woodwork and bring it back <laughs> to its original you know condition? Absolutely. Um, and I probably have a more, couple more years of work to, to finish that. Um, it's a lot of wood to, to, to <laughs> sand and refinish. There is a lot of wood trim, lot but of wood it's trim. beautiful. So, well, thank you. Thank you. So, um, do you, what is your, what is your intention with this house? <laughs> As I feel <laughs> like, uh, so are you restoring it for your enjoyment for the future or you don't know, or you want to restore it and then pick and choose who moves in after? Um, very much, um, looking to stay. Okay. Um, I love the neighborhood. Um, the property is just, uh, the house is so incredibly unique. The chances of finding anything like Very it slim. are <laughs> yeah, slim, to, slim to none. Um, so I, you know, the, the position that, um, that I've taken is, is as long as I'm living in DC, you know, this, this is where I'll be, um, is, is part of this neighborhood. So, so I don't, uh, I generally write about historic figures and mm -hmm. the past and not modern. I too looked at moving into LaJoy Park oh, cool. and I too realized I could not do that. Um, and then I did the cliche thing of get pregnant and move to Silver Spring, Maryland. <laughs> um, my house was built, I think in 19, there's nothing historic about my house. Um, but I would love, I love a place like this when my children are gone. Um, <laughs> but what do you love about living in the neighborhood now? Um, I mean, it is, you know, not to use an overused term, but it, it is a mixing bowl, right? It's a mixing bowl of architecture, of, of people. It literally is the convergence of like four major roads, right? <laughs> that all, all cross here, um, which makes it a, a very, very interesting neighborhood. Um, but it's, it really is that balance. It's, mm. it's the architecture combined with the fact there's new people like myself moving in constantly, um, there's been a wave, uh, like with the Mary Church Drill House of, you know, properties that haven't been touched in decades, mm -hmm. um, finally being brought back to their original condition. Um, and then there's the, the people that have lived here, um, some of them for generations, um, and just running into them on the street. And there is never a day that goes by where I don't see somebody where I learn some little interesting, very bizarre tidbit um, <laughs> about this neighborhood, you know, the kids that used to play on the street here um, and, you know, block traffic and, and all of that. There's, there's just a ton of stories um, that are super interesting. I have always stopped people on the street. I'm that person. 
And I've noticed that the folks who seem to have lived here the longest call it Legerate Park. Yes. But everyone else calls it Legerate. <laughs> yep. yep. But I like that. I have, um, I just, what I love about Legerate Park or Legerate Park is it, you, I mean, you're downtown. I would refer yeah. to this as downtown DC. Does not feel like it yeah. at all. It's, the, like, the, it's very quiet streets, even though it's like a, we're a block away from Florida. Yeah. Um, but I really like that about this neighborhood. Yeah, you have, I mean, at 6 and T, I mean, you have the craziness of Florida and U Street and just the noise and the traffic and everything else going on. Um, and then you round the corner at the Lidroit Gate and all of a sudden it's like, this is yes. strange. Where, you know, <laughs> where, where am I at? Um, I mean, we do have 4th Street. We do have 2nd, 1st Street in Bloomingdale and all that are very much, you know, pass-throughs for, mm -hmm. for commuters, unfortunately. Um but but even then, it's it's very much got a kind of off the beaten path sort of quiet gym yeah atmosphere to it. Do you other than occasionally me and my tour guests see a lot of tourists here? Um, pre pandemic, it used to be a lot more. Okay. Um, this summer we did notice a few more coming back. Um, the walking tours, mm -hmm. um, which has been great and initially you could tell this property wasn't on the tour. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe it's just because folks didn't know anything about it, et cetera. Um, it was probably the, right before the pandemic that I started seeing tours stop and talk a bit. I could overhear them talk a bit about the history and that type of thing. So, And do you love that? I, I really do. Okay. I really do. Um, it's, it's great for people to learn about. As know. a tour guide, I'm never sure if the people who live in the house that I'm talking about enjoy <laughs> though i imagine if you put all the effort into the research and like the physical effort into preserving the history of the house you must enjoy spreading the word yeah and, and in this neighborhood there's not a person you'll talk to that doesn't enjoy people understanding the history um i know paul williams has done a, a number mm -hmm. of house histories in this neighborhood it just speaks to the fact folks are really really interested in that and, and like to share that yeah well so, obviously i agree with that yeah, other than your house do you have a favorite house Either for its architecture or its story? Yes. Um, if nothing else for its, its architecture, unfortunately, I don't know much about its story, but it's the, uh, it, it, the style escapes me, but it's, um, I call it the Hansel and Gretel house. Yes. Um, which is on- I know exactly what yeah, you're talking about. <laughs> that to me is the, is the flat out coolest, most unique house yes. in the city. It is in chapter three of my book. I think chapter, I don't know. It's in the book. I talk about it. Um, but yeah, it is everybody's favorite just the 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 color palette yeah is very different yeah uh, than everywhere else but it stands out and they do a great job with their yard yeah and the the interior was uh i saw it when it was up for sale the last time and went and toured it and the the interior is super unique yeah in terms of the layout the master bedrooms and that pitched roof Ooh. so it's almost like an a-frame okay bedroom. It's, it's really 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 wild so if you moved in in 2016 were you here for the open house tour Yes. Was your house on it or not it yet? It was. Okay. Yep. Um, it was nowhere near um, <laughs> in great <laughs> shape. Um, but I was actually part of the part of the group. Okay. Uh, with oh, I guess Ethan that's how we got introduced. And all. Yep. Because, okay. It is. Um, and it was actually that tour that got the house into Preservation Magazine. Awesome. Which was very cool. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, well, I saw the article you sent, but I also saw it framed over there in yeah. the hallway. Now, um, what is your favorite historical feature of the house do you have one? Oh wow um 
one of, let's see here. I know I didn't prep you for that question. Oh, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think one of the most unique bits about it um, would be like the, the dining room fireplace. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the gentleman who um, originally purchased and, and well, built and designed the house, um, he was a geologist. Um, Abathar White, I think was, was his, his name. Um, so the fireplaces in the house are a very bizarre mix of stones. Um, so the, the dining room fireplace is, is primarily marble, but then it's got soapstone uh, as the hearth, and then it's got uh, Seneca sandstone as the, as the top. So it's, it, it's really a, a strange, sometimes difficult blend yeah. um, aesthetically to, to work with. Um, but I, I would say that's really a feature to the house that speaks to like the design touch of yeah. the original family. I like how you'd be like, this might look weird, but here is why. Right. <laughs> because right. he was a geologist. Yeah. And when, and when I uh, purchased the house, somebody had painted the fireplace brown to make it look like wood. Mm -hmm. um, and it actually had probably about 20 coats of paint on oh my it goodness. Um, to, to get that off and get it back to the original marble. I, somebody had painted our fireplace white. I guess that was mm -hmm. popular in the 80s or 90s. Uh, but I cheated. I just repainted each individual brick a color that looked like brick rather than try to strip all the paint off. Oh, brick, you'll never, you'll never get that. <laughs> so I was just like, I'm just going to repaint this to look like brick. Uh, I don't know why you would paint a fireplace white, but that is my own personal preference. Um, thank you then for peeling off the paint. Yeah, no, no. Um, it's, um... It, so I... I write about um, white and fountain paint in the book, mostly, mm -hmm. thanks to uh, you pushing me toward the research that had already been done um, by Paul Williams. But you have a copy of Peyton's book. Yes. What? Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was to go back to the history of the families. Mm -hmm. um, the Peytons, and I'm, I'm going to mess the dates up. Uh, but I think they purchased the house from the Whites sometime in 18, early mid-1890s. Mm -hmm. um, and they owned it straight up through the mid-60s um, when the last daughter uh, passed away. Um, so for for the Whites, really, it was the fireplaces. It was a bit of the architectural influence and all that, that they had on the house when they built it. Um, and for the Paytons, um, it was, you know, finding something that was unique to that, to that family, right. in that generation, um, and was just doing some research. Uh, Paul Williams mentioned in his research, the book, otherwise I never would have mm -hmm. even known about it. Um, I'm not sure how he found out about it, <laughs> but, um, through a couple of weeks of searching online, I managed to find a copy in a rare bookstore up in new England. Um, for some reason, I have no idea why <laughs> it was there. Um, but it come to find out, over the, the course of the last few years, once I got that book, um, really there's only three copies that I'm aware of. Uh, one is in the National Archives. Um, I'm sorry, the Library of Congress. The other one is at Howard University. Um, and then the other one is here. Those seem like very appropriate places yeah. for the book. Yeah, it, it was kind of cool to think that like it probably was printed in, in a box in this house at some point. Now it's returned it was, home. Now it's returned home. Oh, yeah. I love that so much. I got yeah. chills. It's cool. That is amazing. Uh, is there anything else that you would like our tour guide to all listeners to know about LaDroit Park or your house or the Whites or the Paytons? I will have already talked about them 
in a studio. <laughs> um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's just really interesting the the families um, that, that have lived here and all put their, their touch on it, right? From the tick marks on the, on the doors to, um, you know, the years when it was a boarding house, right? Um, and then even to uh, Frank Smith, uh, and his wife, uh, who lived here, who purchased it from the Paytons, uh, came to find out they were very good friends. Oh. Um, the families were. Um, so. And is that who you purchased it from? That's who I purchased okay. it from. Yep. There was there was a very odd period in there where they had sold it to a developer. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the house, knowing the other work the developer had done, this would have been gutted. Um, and essentially turned into condominiums. No. So, um, actually, the gray house on the circle that was, was gutted was theirs. And there is a whole story um, behind, I told you, there's a number of twists of fate, uh, but they basically ran out of money doing that project wow. and were forced to sell this before they could actually oh, gun God. it and destroy it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's little bits like that from the, the trim not being painted and surviving that whole, you know, uh, period to the fact that, you know, a sequence of events happened with another construction site um, that kept the property in one piece and kind of forced the sale. Um, and I like to think that my contribution to it is, you know, um, restoring it, fixing, you know, the damage over decades of, you know, just maintenance and as old houses do, they, yeah. <laughs> they, they continuously try to fall apart. And fall yes. Down, so. Well, you did a beautiful job. So, thank you. I am obsessed with everything about your house right now. Thank you. It is so lovely. And, and hopefully we'll have another house tour. Um, I would love to next year, but we'll see. I imagine that's a lot of work to put together. <laughs> it is. It is. The Neighborhood Association does an amazing job, and mm-hmm. Ethan Arnhunt did a, a fantastic job uh, with the one a few years back. So hopefully we can convince him to do another one. I will I will push the word out, all of our listeners. Yeah, please, please ask. Um, I am going to turn this off and then ask if I can take a picture of your dining room fireplace. Oh, absolutely. Amazing. I hope that after today's episode, you are intrigued about LaDroit Park. Not so much because I want you to buy the book, but please do that. But I hope you'll look into its the history of the neighborhood. Follow us on social media for images about it. And of course, if you'd like to book a walking tour, you can contact at DC by Foot to do so. Tour Guide Tell All is produced by me, Candon Arseniega. My colleagues, Rebecca Faulkner and Becca L are usually the ones in front of the mic, and they'll be back next week. We are all tour guides in Washington, D.C. with D.C. by Foot, so check us out on a tour sometime. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.